0: This is the California Slap Law Podcast, episode six. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California Slap Law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host One, okay. from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the sixth episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. I am Aaron Morris, a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris and Stone. Our primary practice areas are defamation and free speech, which, of course, brings in anti-slap motions and motions for attorney fees. If I can help you in any of these ways, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or contact me through CaliforniaSlaplaw.com. Again, that phone number is 714 714- 9540700. And if you'd like a big pipeline of clients into your business, then be sure to visit my other site at yourownlawfirm.com. Yourownlawfirm.com. I don't sell anything there. I just enjoy teaching other attorneys how they can market their practices. Well, actually, I take that back. I do have a link there that takes you to my $3 ebook on law firm marketing, which is number one on Amazon. Thank you very much. Here's the thing about law firm marketing that escapes some attorneys. It certainly applies to my practice, and I, I can't imagine that it would not be universal. Attorneys will say to me, I'm I'm plenty busy. I, I do enough marketing to keep potential clients in the pipeline, but I don't need many clients to keep busy. Here's why that's stinking thinking. Say you need, well, let's just make up a number. Say you need 100 active files in your practice to stay fully employed. Now, let's say that your marketing brings in 100 cases, the exact number of cases that you need. That means you're going to have to take every case that walks in the door, and some of those will undoubtedly be stinkers that you would not take unless you had to. So let's say with a little bit better marketing, you had 200 potential cases to choose from. Well, now you can be a little bit more selective. You can take the cases that interest you instead of what we just call rent cases, cases that pay the rent. And what if your marketing allowed you to choose from between 1,000 cases? Well, now you can be really selective. You can take only the cases that really interest you and or that will be more financially rewarding. The moral of this story is that even if you have no desire to grow your practice and even if your current efforts are keeping you plenty busy, having more work to choose from is always a good thing. So don't ignore marketing your law firm just because you are fully employed. But let's get to the topic at hand, which is California slap law. Today, we're going to look at a single case that I find really interesting. And one of the things that made it interesting to me is it's a sort of case that if it had come in the door, I might well have turned it down. So kudos to these attorneys who have managed to keep the case alive, at least so far. We're going to be examining a case that came out this week entitled California Public Employees Retirement System, Inc., Versus Moody's Investors Services Inc. Now I've posted the full case name and even the original complaint at CaliforniaSlapLaw.com forward slash Calpers C A L P E R S. Now here's what happened in this case. As you're probably aware, the California Public Employees Retirement System, referred to as Calpers, is in charge of the pensions of California public employees. Right about the time of the real estate crash back in 2006 and 2007, CalPERS decided it would be just a splendid idea to invest $1.3 billion in subprime mortgages. The money was invested through what are called Structured Investment Vehicles, or SIVs. As CalPERS would later allege, the SIVs they invested in were stuffed full of toxic subprime mortgages, house equity loans, and other types of structured finance securities linked to subprime mortgages. So when the real estate market collapsed, CalPERS lost more than $1 billion in these SIVs and looked around for someone to blame. CalPERS settled on Standard & Poor's as the scapegoat. You see, Standard & Poor's, who is owned by Moody's, had given AAA ratings to these SIVs. So CalPERS alleged that it had relied on those AAA ratings and sued Standard & Poor's for negligent misrepresentation, seeking a billion dollars in damages. Standard & Poor's, for its part, responded with an anti-slap motion saying that its opinion about the investment quality of these SIVs was protected speech. So how do you think the courts ruled on the anti-slap motion? Well, for its part, the trial court denied the anti slap motion. The trial court found that the complaint did fall under the anti slap statute, but found that CalPERS had successfully met the second prong of the anti slap analysis. The trial court found that CalPERS had successfully shown that it was more likely than not to prevail on the claim of negligent misrepresentation for reasons that we'll discuss in a minute. So, again, the case did fall under the anti slap statute. But it survived because CalPERS was able to present a prima facie case. Standard & Poor's appealed from the denial of the anti-slap motion, claiming that CalPERS could not possibly make a showing that it was likely to succeed on the action because opinion speech is protected. When you think about it, that really is a strong argument. Let's, let me give you an example. Let's say I run a gold newsletter predicting when the market will move up and move down as to gold. If my opinion turns out to be wrong, can an investor sue me? Isn't it understood that any investment opinion might be wrong? If it's assumed that anything I said about gold would be correct, then why would I be publishing a newsletter? I just invest in gold myself. Cowper's cross-appeal, it was not happy that the trial court had found that the complaint even fell under the first prong of the analysis and wanted that finding to be reversed. Which takes us to the opinion of the Court of Appeal. Again, the full opinion can be found at californiaslaplaw.com forward slash CalPERS, C-A-L-P-E-R-S. As to meeting the first prong of the anti-slap motion analysis, the Court of Appeal stated, we reject CalPERS' claim that its negligent misrepresentation claim is not based in significant part on the rating agency's speech-related activity. CalPERS' complaint itself makes clear the negligent misrepresentation claims arise from the allegations that the rating agencies assigned untrue, inaccurate, and unjustifiably high credit ratings to the SIVs, which were then communicated to plaintiff via the offering materials of the SIVs, the rating agencies' respective websites, through financial reporting services, and directly to CalPERS authorized agent. You see, attorneys are still living back in the days when the first prong actually meant something on a a slap law analysis. You still need to go through the analysis, and you will find cases that don't meet the first prong, certainly. But a case where Standard & Poor's is exercising its right to talk about billion-dollar investments? Yes, that's going to be found to fall under the anti-slap statute. But what did the Court of Appeal think about the whole opinion issue? How can this action by CalPERS survive when Standard & Poor's was just stating an opinion about something that might or might not occur in the future? Well, the Court of Appeal began its analysis with a quote straight out of Witkin. Quote, where the defendant makes false statements, honestly believing that they are true, but without reasonable ground for such belief, he may be held liable for negligent misrepresentation, a form of deceit. Now, the elements of negligent misrepresentation are, one, the misrepresentation of a past or existing material fact, two, without reasonable ground for believing it to be true, three, with intent to induce another's reliance on the fact misrepresented, four, justifiable reliance on the misrepresentation, and five, resulting damage. So after laying out all of the groundwork, the Court of Appeal then tempered these statements with the following observation, Quote, It is Hornbook law that an actionable misrepresentation must be made about past or existing facts. Statements regarding future events are merely deemed opinions. But then the court began to turn. It said, Under certain circumstances, expressions of professional opinion are treated as representations of fact. When a statement, although in the form of an opinion is not a casual expression of belief, but a deliberate affirmation of the matter stated, it may be regarded as a positive assertion of fact. Moreover, when a party possesses or holds itself out as possessing superior knowledge or special information or expertise regarding the subject matter, and a plaintiff is so situated that it may reasonably rely on supposed knowledge, information, or expertise, the defendant's representations may be treated as one of material fact. After stating the law in that manner, the Court of Appeal held that the ratings in this case were not merely casual statements of belief, but rather deliberate assertions based on analysis of non-public confidential information and assigned after the ratings agency participated in structuring the SIVs. As such, the ratings should be deemed actionable expressions of professional opinion rather than non-actionable predictions regarding future events. In essence, the attorneys for Standard & Poor's fell into their own trap. To argue that they should not be liable for future results of the SIVs, they had said that the industry exists in a, quote, shroud of secrecy. That was their own words. Basically, they were arguing that they should not be held responsible for what they said because no one can really know the inner machinations of these investment vehicles. But that got turned on them because that means that as shallow as the analysis of these investment vehicles might be, Standard & Poor's was in the far superior position to peer behind the veil. In conclusion, the Court of Appeal held, as such, we agree with Cowpers. a prima facie case has been made that the ratings are actionable as professional opinions or deliberate affirmations of fact regarding the nature and quality of the SIV product. The Court of Appeal upheld the ruling of the trial court denying the motion on the grounds that Cowpers had made a prima facie showing. So what are the takeaways from CalPERS versus Moody's? At this point, I'd love to cue Don't Fear the Reaper, because the larger takeaway is that even if you're looking into the tooth-filled jaws of the anti-slap statute, be not afraid if you have a really strong showing to meet the challenge of the second prong. And second, don't immediately assume that opinions are not actionable. As set forth in this case, under the proper circumstances, even an opinion can be actionable. That'll do it for today's brief show. Thank you for joining me on the California Slap Law podcast. For all your anti-slap needs, be sure to call me at 714-954-0700, or you can email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. Many years ago, when I was selecting a domain name for my primary website, I was checking the availability of the names. And as you've probably experienced yourself, it's hard to come up with a name that isn't taken. Now, most firms make the mistake of using the name of their firm. That that will be available, but that's not very good uh, from an SEO standpoint because no one is going to search for the name of your firm. Um, you want, if possible, to use uh, the name of your practice or the, 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 whatever it is you do as part of the name because that's how people will find you. On the other hand, I had a few practice areas, so I, I couldn't pick a name that was limited to one of those practice areas for the main website. In other words, if I'd selected defamationattorneys.com as the domain name, that'd be great for the defamation clients but would make our employment practice look secondary. So I kept checking names and came up with toplawfirm.com. I thought that was a great name. It has law firm in the name, so it does have some SEO value. And I thought it was crazy easy to remember, toplawfirm.com. But about half the time when I'm giving my email address to someone, the conversation goes something like this. What is your email address, they'll ask. It's just my last name, Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S, Morris at toplawfirm.com. Did you say M-O-R-S-E? No, Morris with two R's. M-O-R-R-I-S. Oh, Morris. Well, what was the rest of it, they'll ask. Morris at TopLawFirm.com. Pop Law Firm? No, not pop. Top, like go to the top. Not the bottom law firm, because you wouldn't want to go to them. You want to go to the top. So it's Top Law Firm. Oh, top, they'll say. That does make a lot more sense than pop. Well, what was the rest of it? Law Firm. When you send the email, you'll be writing to a law firm. So it's toplawfirm.com. Is top law firm all one word or are there spaces? No, no, no. It's it's all one word. Okay, Morris at toplawfirm, all one word. What's the rest of it? Well, that would be .com. So it's Morris at toplawfirm.com. Okay, Morris at toplawfirm.com, they'll say. Oh, top law firm. I get it. Wow, that's really good. How'd you get that? Then I'll get an email from an attorney whose email is something like J Johnson for you at Johnson Abercrombie dot com with a number four and U is spelled with the letter U. And I wonder how the attorney keeps from killing himself. Well, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.